relationship anarchy, I will say the most basic definition um, is relationship anarchy is about negotiating relationships in terms of the individual needs, wants, and boundaries of the people involved in those relationships, rather than relying on sort of social categories of relationships to, to determine what the appropriate behavior is. So to give kind of a, a more specific example, um, rather than saying, okay, you are my girlfriend, and because you're my girlfriend, all of these other things must be true in terms of how we behave with each other, what we expect from each other, um, and what we don't do with other people. It's saying, you know, I feel this way about you. These are the things I need from you in order to feel secure in this relationship. This is what I want from this relationship, and this is what I can't handle in this relationship. Um, so that's essentially how, how relationship anarchy operates in my life. That was Halen Belay, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 123. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I can't tell you how glad I am that you're listening in today, and I want to take a minute right here at the top of the show to quickly share some appreciation, give out a little thank you. Thank you for listening to this show. I know there's tons of podcasts out there. Thank you for valuing honest conversations. Thank you for being open to hearing from guests whose lived experiences and opinions might be different from your own. That's huge, and that's what we do here. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking two minutes or less probably to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Seriously, it's just huge help in spreading the word and helping new people find us. So I really appreciate you taking a second to do that. And thank you, thank you so much for supporting and funding the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before, and I am so grateful for that. I have a really wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but first, in case you're new to this show, I'd love to quickly explain what it is that we do here. So at the heart of it, my guests and I are really committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic bullet 10-day six-step life hack plans for anything. (laughs) As a recovering self-help junkie myself, I am totally over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even what brought you here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and tons of others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. It's definitely an adult podcast that covers adult subjects, which means that we do often use adult language, so there's your little language warning, Um, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable, and sometimes it is. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener-funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. The show is and always will be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. You've probably heard me say this before, but I really do believe that where we spend our money, how we spend our money, that's a real time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. 
So when you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, which is super fun, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. It's probably, I mean, I'm, I'm vulnerable on the show for sure, but the weekly emails are where I share a lot of my real life as it's happening. Um, and you'll also be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and other upcoming events in the future. There are three different funding levels that you can see over on Patreon. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. Everything that I just mentioned is at the $8 level. Um, up at the $25 level, we do live group Google Hangouts. And oh my gosh, those are so much fun. But again, you can check all that out over on Patreon. So one more time, it's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Halen Belay. Halen is a sex educator, holistic health expert, public speaker, and witch based in New York City. Her expertise lies at the intersection of identity, health, and pleasure, whether she's helping clients use tarot to connect to their intuition or teaching a classroom of teenagers proper condom technique. With nearly a decade of experience in health promotion, Halen is passionate about bringing spirituality, sex, and social justice together under one unifying manifesto, that all people deserve an integrated sex life and the healthy pursuit of pleasure. In this episode, Halen shares stories from all the different facets of her life and work as a sex educator, tarot reader, writer, and practicing witch. She talks about how to live an integrated sex life, including some questions to ask yourself in order to get more in touch with who you are as a sexual person. And she shares the type of sex education that she would love to see happening in classrooms everywhere. We talk about tons of other stuff as well. Relationship anarchy, spirituality and tarot, toxic masculinity and objectification, and more. There are a few tiny audio hiccups with Skype in the first 20-ish minutes, but stick with it, I promise. Halen has so much wisdom and truth to share throughout this episode, and I know that you'll love it as much as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Okay, we are good to go. Halen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I would love for you to drop me into your real life and tell me how you spent the first hour of your day today. Oh, God. Uh, how did I spend the first hour of my day? Um, this Mercury retrograde has been kicking my butt um, pretty intensely. So I spent the first hour of my day being stressed, um, being acutely stressed and cuddling with my with my cat, Princess Walter. Um so for any cat people out there, I have a beautiful, perfect Maine Coon named Walter, and he saves my life on a daily basis. Princess Walter. <laughs> I'm very familiar with the life-saving properties of cats. I had never had pets growing up, and when my now husband and I got together, he had had a cat for years and years, and I thought, okay, well, I guess this person comes with a cat, and now I'm, you know, the ultimate cat person. So. It's just, it's a kind of, of love that it just can't be beat. I know that's cliche to say. But um, as I'm fond of joking, Princess Walter is the most emotionally stable man in my life. Um, you know, he's very available and he doesn't talk very much. It's 
it's an ideal relationship in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, yeah, my cats, um, I'm definitely their second favorite. They much prefer Paul than they do me, but that's okay. Oh. I, I, I will take their, <laughs> I will be their second grace downgrade love. It's fine. Um, so I've been looking to, forward to this conversation for a while. I was so excited when you said yes to being on the show, because I think that it's going to be so much fun to dig into all the different facets of your work. I love talking to other multi-passionate people who do things that maybe on paper, like seemingly don't go together. But I love um, when we were talking before recording and you said, you know, that your work is all connected, whether it's woo-woo stuff or teaching kids about IUDs. And I'm like, yes, like I want to talk about all the different things, especially that I, I told you this before too, that your bio, sex educator, tarot reader, and witch are three things that I've never seen together in one person's bio. I'm like, I'm ready to see the interconnection between all these things. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. Um, my business cards, when I got my business cards designed, I was like, okay, I want something that I can hand out at, you know, a networking hour, but also that I can hand out to, you know, cute, cute people I see on the subway. And actually having those three things, or actually I think on my business card, it says writer, sex educator, witch. But having those three things on my business card is a great litmus test for both professionally and personally, if I'm going to get along with somebody or if we're going to work well together. Um, Cause usually, I mean, there's one of, of, two responses, essentially. Either people are sort of really gung-ho about it and have a lot of questions, or they're sort of immediately like, oh, I don't. I don't want any part of <laughs> whatever is happening here. And that's a pretty good map for, you know, how we'll probably get along as people, because all of those identities are really important to to who I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the nice things about being really upfront about who you are, uh, is that it sort of acts as a filter that you don't have to mess around with people for whom, you know, like 10 steps down the line, that's not going to be a good fit. Exactly. I'm a strong advocate of kind of putting putting everything on my sleeves. That's not I'm like mixing a couple of metaphors there, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Just having it all out there. It's 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 worth doing that than kind of I've been in the position of sort of pretending to be I mean, we all have been in the position. We all went to middle school and pretended to be someone that we weren't for the sake of kind of getting people to like us, but mm -hmm. If someone doesn't like that, I'm, I'm, I put it on my resume, um, which I've had some people ask me questions about because I, I do work a pretty um, a regular nine to five job um, at a nonprofit. And I had friends who were like, oh, my God, you put that on your resume for applying for this job. And I was like, yeah, because I don't really want to work in an office where me being a witch is something that is like contentious or secretive or, you know, has to be totally separate from my work because it really informs my work as a psych educator as well. Not that I'm okay before I don't want anyone like in my mentions or my inbox. I'm not like indoctrinating children into witchcraft to be super clear, but more so in the same way that someone's kind of value systems or, or spiritual practice inform everything they do. Like me being a witch is a big part of, of who I am and how I see the world. So I can't really pretend that's not a part of me anywhere I go. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's actually a, a good place to start. Um, maybe we could start with you describing what you mean when you say that you're a witch, because I think that there's yeah. probably a lot of sort of myths and misconceptions that pop up when people hear that. Yeah, it means that um, every full moon I dance nude in the woods at midnight and, um, you know, commune with the devil and summon spirits. Um <laughs> No, I mean, there are a million different ways to be a witch. Um, so first and foremost, my way is not the only way. I think a lot of people, when they hear witch, especially in America, they think Wiccan. Um, and witch and Wiccan are not necessarily, uh, they're Venn diagrams that don't completely overlap. So there's lots of witches who are not 
Wiccans, uh, I would be one of those witches. For me, it's much more of a spiritual practice than a theistic practice. So me personally, I don't invoke particular like spirits. Um, I'm not communing with particular gods or goddesses. But with the kind of core thing that that everything that falls under the witchcraft umbrella has in common is that um, magic is the idea that there's some kind of universal divine something. Um, it's in the trees. It's in the plants. It's in us as human beings. Um, not in like a... Again, it's not always in an animistic way, but just in the idea that all, all matter has some kind of atomic stuff, um, depending on how scientific you want to get with it. And that because I'm a human being and because I have this, this sort of divine stuff within me, I can channel that in particular ways. I can combine that with um, particular herbs or I can combine that with particular movements of my body um, and intentionally direct that divinity or direct that energy to affect change in the world. That's like the most simple run-on sentence explanation of, of what magic is. So for me to say that I'm a witch, all I'm really saying is that I believe that I have some kind of power, um, both in the mundane world in terms of like I can make choices in my life that make a difference in the physical realm and also on an energetic level. I think that my my intention has value. Um, and when I say my intention has value, it's not about saying that, you know, I'm a witch because I was born with something that you don't have or that you would never have access to. Um, I'm a witch because I that's the way that I choose to interact with the world. That's my organizing principle for the world. Um, I believe that everyone has magic in them or they have whatever that universal stuff is. You can call it energy or you can call it, um, I don't know, a soul. You can call it divinity. I've heard a lot of people call it a lot of different things. Some people call it God. Not to be too spicy, not to be too edgy. <laughs> but I think it comes, from, it comes from a really similar place. And that's why I wasn't raised... Uh, a witch. Um, I was raised Orthodox Christian, but I think that's why magic really spoke to me is that, um, ritual has always been part of my life. Ritual has always really spoken to me and witchcraft allowed me to kind of put myself at the, at the seat of power in my own spiritual life, um, and feel more empowered in, in my own intuition and in my own sort of sense of things. It's mm, so well said. I love that description. So that's interesting. So you weren't raised into this. Then can you tell me the story of how, magic came into your life in this way? Like, what was the change? Well, I mean, there there was always magic in my life in some way. I don't think that my mom would have called it that for a long time. Um, so a bit of background. I was raised by a single mother, um, and she had freshly come from Ethiopia. Actually, so I hate that I know this part of the story, but I was conceived in Ethiopia. Mm. Um, and my mom came to the States pregnant, uh, unbeknownst to her. And so the first couple of months that she was in the U.S., she was getting sick all the time and gaining a bunch of weight. And she went to the doctor and said that um, the American food was making her sick and making her gain weight. And the doctor was like, no, you are just pregnant. And that was me. Um, so I was very much a surprise. <laughs> and 
when I was younger, my mom, um, I mean, she had literally just come from Ethiopia when she got here and she was like 18. So she worked really hard to, I don't even know if it felt like work to her, um, to maintain the traditions and kind of the day-to-day lifestyle that she was accustomed to where she was from. Like I only ever ate Ethiopian food in the house. Um, we went to an Eastern Orthodox church that was kind of as close as we could get to the kind of church that she had been raised in. Um, and so I don't think she would have called it magic, but there were a lot of elements of kind of being raised Ethiopian, um, culturally and being raised, uh, in, in the church religiously that were really informative for me. And just, again, the way that I saw the world, my organizing principle for the world. So one of those things was, um, I've talked about this in a, in a couple of other places and anyone who is Ethiopian will know what I'm talking about. But the idea of, of Gorsha, which is, um, you know, you eat Ethiopian food with your hands. So Gorsha is when you feed somebody and feeding somebody Ethiopian food means you're basically putting your hand like in their mouth. Um, and it's very intimate, obviously, but it's, it's sort of imbued with this extra significance. Um, it's, it's almost like the smallest version of a ritual where, um, you know, putting food into somebody's mouth is on a mundane level, you're feeding their body on an energetic level. You're nourishing their, I mean, them like as an entity, as a, as a being, as not just a physical body, but as a, again, you can use the word soul, but whatever, whatever that means to you. Um, And to me, what that means is I was raised kind of repeatedly enacting this ritual where the way that someone kind of, um, you know, the way that you cement a relationship with somebody, the way that you show somebody or demonstrate to somebody um, what your relationship with them is, is all tied up in this really um, small, but really intimate, really powerful ritual of feeding someone from your hand. And it's also, you know, the way that you compose the bite, like which which uh, dishes from the plate are you going to put in that bite that you give them? How big is the bite? That was, that was one of my favorite things to do um, with my non-Ethiopian exes was like, go to an Ethiopian restaurant, show them how to do gorsha. And then whenever they gave me a bite, be like, wow, um, you know, I didn't tell you this before, but the size of the bite is proportionate to how much affection you feel for that person. And, and you know, you, you failed this arbitrary test, um, <laughs> which was, um, I don't know. That's like the most devious that I get, really. That's like the most most evil thing I've done. <laughs> trick somebody into accidentally not showing enough affection. Um, <laughs> I think if that's the most evil thing you've done, I think you're fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing pretty I'm trying pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that was, I mean, that was really my introduction to magic, if we're being, if we're being all the way, way real. I didn't call it magic, but like, you know, I grew up in a house that always smelled like church because we were burning incense 24-7. Um, and there was a lot of sort of mysticality in my life. My mom was, um, again, she wouldn't call herself a witch. She is like tried and true. I mean, she was raised in the church and, and only recently has she kind of started loosening up, um, in letting me call myself, um, a non-theistic person at all. But my mom, when I was younger, used to tell me, And still tells me that she had clairvoyant visions, um, that they were a lot stronger when she was younger, but that she, you know, continued to have them through her life. And she also, um, you know, when I was sick, she would, she would lay hands on me and, uh, the way that she would phrase it, she was like, she would suck the sickness out through her hands. I don't know. Mom magic is the most incredible magic that I've 
personally ever experienced. And that shit always works like a hundred percent of the time, no matter what was wrong with me. If my mom put her hands on me, it stopped hurting. Um, so yeah, I think I, there was always this idea and not only that, but my family history is so kind of star crossed. I mean, even just from that story of how I came to be born in the United States, um, there's so many sort of weird moments of synchronicity and, and meaningful coincidence and kind of paths crossing at strange times that I think I was sort of primed mm -hmm. for the idea of magic long before I started really practicing it. Um, I didn't start practicing until I was in college when I started with tarot cards and the tarot cards were just like a fun mess around thing. And then I was like, Oh, this is actually this. I might've just done something here, you know? Yeah. So after the getting introduced, you know, if tarot cards were your entry point, what happened after that? Cause when you said before, I think you used the word practicing, I guess I'm curious on sort of more specifics of what it looks like for you in your life to be a practicing witch. Yeah. Um, so like I said, there's not, there's not a lot of, of prayer for me specifically in the sense of kind of like speaking to or communing with something outside of myself. Um, my witchcraft actually is mostly about really doing the opposite and, and drawing my attention inward and, and into myself. Um, so to rewind a little bit, I, I picked up my first tarot deck in college pretty shortly after I'd gotten out of a um, very abusive relationship. And I was kind of, I mean, I was looking at it as something to kind of mess around with, but I think I was also looking for just like a new organizing principle because things felt very fractured. And um, yeah, as anyone who's experienced trauma knows, like the, the aftermath is a lot of like searching. Um, and I found that what, what I liked so much about the tarot um, and why I started to invest in it more and sort of, as you mentioned, like broaden my practice was because tarot was a tool for me to, to do that searching internally and kind of into myself. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of places externally where we can look to find guidance or find um, reason or a sense of things. And none of those things are necessarily bad. But for me, what I needed in that moment was to feel like you know, as I was kind of saying earlier, that I was the seat of power in my own universe. So what that looks like for me is um, a lot of meditation, a lot of, um, you know, I've joked about this before, but it's not really a joke that my witchcraft practice is actually just magical self-care um, and not like the cute self-care of like, I don't know, not like Pinterest self-care. I mean, like, like actual, you know, mental illness self-care of like, Sometimes it's hard to take showers, so I take magical showers because it's easier to compel myself to take a magical shower when I'm experiencing depression, um, or it's more easy to compel myself to do something that causes me anxiety if um, I have some kind of ritualized protective spell that I can do beforehand. Um, so in that sense, and I'm I'm pretty like frank about this, I do consider my spiritual practice to have a certain amount of suspension, suspension of disbelief. Um, you know, not saying that I think it's as fictional as something you would see on a movie screen, but insofar as like, I don't, I don't know anything. Part of why I think magic works is because we don't really know how anything works. Um, so I'm willing to put my faith in this thing and believing that this thing works because on a functional level, it works for me. Mm -hmm. 
And something I say a lot is like, cause that people, that's like my number one question I get on first dates is like, Oh, do you like really believe in it? Um, and to me, it's like, I don't care if it's real. I just care if it's true and magic is true in my life. Um, it has had like material consequences for making my life better. I feel better. Um, I feel, and not just, I feel better, you know, physically, I feel better emotionally. I feel better socially. I feel more empowered to like trust my gut intuition. Um, I feel like I have places to turn when I'm, when I'm confused about something or feel blocked in some way. And also as someone who provides tarot services to other people, um, I feel like it's helped me help other people, which like that's, if we're talking about a connecting line between all my my different things that I do. Like that's what I'm all about is helping people feel more empowered and and connected within themselves to the things that they want and need to do. Yeah. I love that description so much of sort of, I mean, to paraphrase what you were saying, like, well, I don't care if it's, you know, actually real or empirically true, you know, whatever that it works for you. I feel like that's applicable to so many different people in so many different situations that like, why are we so obsessed with knowing like, I don't know, d- does this really work? Well, I don't know. It works for me. Right. So that's all that Matt, right? Like being, having sort of the confidence to empower yourself to do the things that work for you, whether that is on a self-care basis, whether that is on a mental health basis or in right. any other area of your life to be like, this works for me. So I'm going to have faith in this. And I don't really care if it works for anyone else or if anyone else even understands it. Well, and I mean, not to get, I'm going to like climb on a soapbox for half a second, but you were saying like, why, you know, why are people so obsessed with things being objectively true? And the answer to that is, uh, white supremacy. Like the, the answer to that is that we live in, um, a social and cultural complex of ideas and ideologies where the only things that are supposed to be trustworthy are these things that are measurable and true. But as any woman can tell you, as any person of color can tell you, especially black people, especially indigenous people, um, as any disabled person can tell you, as pretty much anyone outside of those, those like big major, uh, privileged identity groups. I mean, privilege feels like a weak word to use in this context when I'm talking about like, um, you know, things from like women being institutionalized because their autonomy was, was medicalized. Um, or, I mean, just the number of abuses. I, it would be a whole different podcast. I didn't write this at all in one of our topics, (laughs) but it's obviously a soapbox for me that part of why I'm so like attached to magic and part of why it is so meaningful to me is that it also feels like a rejection of really every way that, um, these like, cis heteropatriarchal institutions um and i say that kind of mockingly but like really seriously all of those institutions have caused tremendous pain and trauma in my life in the lives of my my family um intergenerationally in the lives of people who look like me um in the lives of people who don't look like me who i have who i have nothing in common with other than the ways that i've been told by all these systems that like my intuition means shit that i mean shit that i'm not worth anything um that I don't have autonomy, that I don't have control. Um, Especially in this conversation about like faith and belief. Um, Cause I think a lot of, a lot of times what people are mocked for kind of believing in or taking to be true. They're all things that are coded as, as like feminine, as foreign, as other, but others specifically from this like hyper logical 
Western paradigm that has that has been wrong. Like science has been wrong. Reason has been wrong. Everything else has been proven wrong, too. So I don't care if my thing is wrong because it works for me and it's fun. Yeah, I think I'm so glad that you brought this up because that's also something that I've heard you say that this the idea that practicing magic in the 21st century is not just a spiritual practice, but that it's a political one as well. And hearing the way that you break down, like, like exactly as you just did, I think is so important because, yeah, that thing of why do we need things to be, you know, capital T true. It's exactly like you said, because that's what upholds the systems is if we all like only believe and operate under these like very narrow, limited perspectives. Right, exactly. And I think, I mean, looking at who are the people who are considered sort of the most successful from those narrow perspectives? Who are the sort of great thinkers and great minds of those perspectives? I went to Columbia for undergrad. It was a positive experience in some ways. Um, But maybe the most important thing that I learned there was the the common core, common core, core curriculum. Wow. Uh, as you can see, I've blocked out a lot of memories of my undergraduate career. <laughs> yeah, that's relatable. Um, yeah, I can get it. So the, the core curriculum at Columbia is essentially, um, it's about the size of its own major. So it's like 30 something credits and every single student who takes their undergrad at Columbia has to take a year of, um, Western philosophy, a year of Western literature uh, let me see here. One semester of Western art, one semester of Western music, one, no, two semesters of cultures from literally anywhere else in the world. Just fit that into two semesters. Yeah, no big deal. Right? Uh, I, I went to NYU and it was very similar. So yeah, I'm like, yeah. you can't see this, but I'm nodding a lot. Like our core curriculum, I think a lot of liberal arts schools and stuff are the same. Yeah. And I think, I mean, part of what was so shocking to me about Columbia is how kind of blatantly oh god i know i'm not saying edit this out but like if i say this and some columbia person is like don't take it personally i learned a lot from the core curriculum but that western canon was so blatantly sort of enforced as like we all had to read not just take the same classes but we all had to read plato we all had to read homer we all had to read dante we all had to read um all of these things that were And, you know, liberal arts schools, the whole point is to give you a well-rounded education. But why is this a well-rounded education? Mm -hmm. Like, why is this what's considered a well-rounded education? And why is this what I need to know? Now, that being said, it is what I need to know, because I think having that education has made it a lot easier for me to to move through the spaces that I need to move through in my professional life. Um, But I think, again, that's why I treasure so much being able to come home and, and do some woo-woo stuff. Do some stuff that has really nothing to do with like what's measurable, what's knowable, what's rational, um, what's arguable. I mean, I can argue about it if someone really wants to, but it's not that important. If you prove me wrong, I won't be too upset. Mm -hmm. Also, I mean, no one can prove wrong your lived experience. It works for you. So exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that. So you mentioned that tarot was sort of well, at least one of the entry points for this for you. I'm curious on how that has evolved because I know that that's something that you do regularly, right? Is tarot readings for other people. It's, we were talking about this before we started recording that I'm like, how can I pay you to do tarot for me? I'm super interested in that. So. Yeah. Um, I started doing tarot for myself and I was doing that for years before I started doing it for other people. Um, it was a really personal practice for me for a long time. My first tarot deck was, um, 
All right. So there's there's a museum on the Upper West Side of um, this painter named Nicholas Rorick. I strongly recommend to anyone who is around Manhattan um, to check it out because it's it's free and it's tiny, so it won't take up too much of your time. But um, he was this Russian painter and mystic and and sort of proto anthropologist, um, which, as we all know, means like racist, low key racist, high key racist. Probably I didn't meet the guy, but he made amazing art. Incredible art, transcendent art. Um, and I, that physical location was really important to me for a long time. Um, that art was really important to me for a long time. And so when I got my first tarot deck, just kind of on a, on a whim, I guess, my, my gut instinct told me to Google like Nicholas Rorick tarot deck just to see if it existed. And it did. And I had to order it fr- from some website that was not in English. Um, and I got these cards that are that are sort of in English. They have like very, very poor English translations on them. So I have to kind of, I mean, working with that deck was really hard because I had to figure out what the images meant. And I, I didn't know what a tarot deck was supposed to look like. Um, but once I kind of got accustomed to it, that deck did and continues to give me some of the most kind of powerful and, and meaningful readings that I've ever gotten for me personally. Um, I don't use that deck with, with other people because I don't think it would work with other people. And for a long time, I didn't think that t- I could do tarot for other people at all. Um, cause I was like, I mean, I think I said this earlier that part of what tarot meant for me was like going within myself. And so the idea of kind of, so I'm going to use the cards to go deeper within someone else, like someone who I maybe haven't met and don't know very well. Um, even if I could do that, it felt really just like invasive and, and really the opposite of sort of what it meant to me to have a practice that was about centering myself um, and feeling I could trust myself as opposed to looking to someone else to tell me, you know, what I should do or what was right or what was wrong. So it ended up being um, that a friend of mine for his birthday asked me if I could bring a tarot deck or he asked actually all of his guests if someone could bring a tarot deck and I just happened to bring um not that personal one, but I had like another extra one that I just happened to have and I picked up and I brought over. And I ended up doing readings for folks. And it was actually at that first kind of casual brunch get together that I developed um, the style that I use to to throw cards now, um, which is essentially rather than um, most professional tarot readers kind of see themselves like a medium or a psychic of some kind where they're channeling something that only they have access to. Um, And so because of that, they're really possessive of their cards and they won't let other people touch them. And so what I ended up doing is because I was, you know, like I said, I was like, well, I don't know you well enough to draw cards for you. I don't even know your middle name. Like I've never met your mom. So I don't feel qualified to pull cards for you, but I can tell you how to, draw the cards. I can tell you what formation to lay them out in to answer the questions that you have. And I can translate them for you and tell you what they mean. Um, so I'm always really clear with my clients, even from that first read through of saying like, I'm not doing magic. The cards aren't doing magic. It's just a deck of playing cards. Um, well, tarot cards, but yeah, it's not about me telling you something. It's not about the cards telling you something. It's not about the universe telling you something. Um, it's about you intuitively drawing forward the images that you need to see to get clarity on whatever the situation is. And that's that's how I had used tarot for years um, before I did it for other people. And so it just seemed like the most obvious way to do it um, for someone else was, you know, instead of being kind of a, a like 
chauffeur down the road of tarot to be um, a tarot doula, I like to call myself, just someone to like walk with, walk with you on the journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Then how does it work doing it long distance then? So great question. Um, and this is something that I've had to kind of figure out over time. And right now, I honestly didn't think it would work, but it has been working. And like I said earlier, if I don't really care if it's real as long as it's true. So since people still get good readings off this, this is what I'm doing. Um, I had not done long distance readings for a while because I couldn't figure out how to do it. And then I took a Reiki certification course. Um, so I'm technically a certified Reiki healer, although I don't really do energy healing because um, it, it doesn't feel like something that I'm I've, I've had people do it to me and I'm like, oh, you're way better at this than I am. This isn't my skill set. But one thing that I did learn um, from that certification course was about um, essentially distance flowing energy. Um, so what I do is with, with clients who I have in person, um, I, I guide them through a short meditation um, to get them sort of in a good intuitive place. And then I have them draw the cards that are um, that are in front of them, my cards. Over the phone, I'll usually do um, a shared meditation where I'll invite that person to do a meditation. Um, and I almost don't want to tell you this if you do get a distance reading, but the purpose of that meditation is it's it is charging um, the cards and it's helping to to flow that energy. But really, the purpose of the of the meditation is to get the client into a headspace where they are breathing and they're paying attention to how their body feels. Mm-hmm. Um, so by doing that sort of shared meditation, one, it gets them into a headspace where they're maybe a little bit more receptive. And then two, it allows me to f- do a little bit of that dis- distance flowing technique, which normally my skeptic's brain, I mean, the first time I did it, my skeptic's brain was like, this isn't going to work because energy flowing is, I mean, how, how can that possibly work? It doesn't make any kind of scientific sense. And you know, what are you doing, Halen? Um, but then I do readings for people. And I mean, the number one thing that I hear after readings with clients is like, I, I already knew that, like I, I already felt that way. I just needed to see it externalized. I needed to, I need to hear it in that way or from that perspective to really let it sink in. Mm-hmm. And that's what tarot has been for me too, is like, it's not giving me, it's, I'm not turning over a card that says you're going to meet a tall, dark stranger next week. Um, and I don't, I don't really want that either. That's not useful to me. What's useful to me is like, okay, this decision that you've been waffling over for weeks and weeks, here are some really clear images to help you figure out how do you feel about these situations and what do you need to know about these situations. Um, and so I've, I've still been able to give people that over the phone, which to me is why I've continued to do distance readings is because they still, they still work. Um, and actually a couple days ago for the first time I did a distance reading where someone happened to have a deck of their own. So I was able to over the phone instruct them in what to do, tell them where to lay the cards out. And then they told me what cards they laid out. And I, and I basically translated for them over the phone, which was really cool. That's so neat. Okay. Well, we will talk about that after because I'm definitely interested in that. (laughs) So cool. Yeah. Um, so I just have to tell you, so, I mean, I guess people listening don't really know that much about my prep process before, um, episodes, but there's always 
was some emailing back and forth, just trying to get a sense of the couple of topics that are most top of mind, you know, for you, for the guest right now, just to say, hey, what are you super interested in that you want to talk about? And the <laughs> the topic breakdown that you sent me back was one, the literally the best that I've ever received. It was like so <laughs> thorough. There were so many different options of places to go. I was reading it and literally my thought was two hours is not enough time. I was so stressed out of like, how do I choose between all of these topics that we want to discuss? So you're invited back anytime. But one of the things that you mentioned that seemed, like you said, everything is connected, but that seemed the most um, different maybe from everything else that was on the list. Um, You said that you wanted to talk about relationship anarchy, which is such a funny coincidence because that's something that it's a term that I've recently learned and have only like in the last, I don't know, six to eight months, like started digging into myself. It came up through some reading and research about non-monogamy and polyamory and, you know, other things It popped up through that. And I just listened to a whole podcast episode about it. And so I was like, oh my God, wait, you want to talk about this? So I think that's a fun place to go next and maybe... Um, to get into that, can you define what that term means for folks who haven't heard relationship anarchy before? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, disclaimer, um, you'll hear a lot of definitions for relationship anarchy for the same reason that you'll hear a lot of definitions for, like, sex positivity um, or even, I mean, polyamory as an umbrella term. Um, But relationship anarchy, I will say the most basic definition um, is relationship anarchy is about negotiating relationships in terms of the individual needs, wants, and boundaries of the people involved in those relationships, rather than relying on sort of social categories of relationships to to determine what the appropriate behavior is. So to give kind of a a more specific example, um, rather than saying okay, you are my girlfriend, and because you're my girlfriend, all of these other things must be true in terms of how we behave with each other, what we expect from each other, um, and what we don't do with other people. It's saying, you know, I feel this way about you. These are the things I need from you in order to feel secure in this relationship. This is what I want from this relationship, and this is what I can't handle in this relationship. Um, So that's essentially how how relationship anarchy operates in my life. Um, For some people, relationship anarchy also means kind of having a fundamental um, aversion to or opposition to, rather, uh, monogamy or like using kind of relationship labels whatsoever. Um, For me personally, it's not so much about saying that monogamy is bad or, um, you know, calling someone a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or partner um, is a bad thing, but that those things for me, I would want to be sort of intentional choices rather than, I mean, let's be real, like the sort of traditional dating script, especially for heterosexual people is like, well, once you like each other a certain amount, or once you've kind of been physically intimate a certain number of times or to a certain extent, then this label applies. And if that label applies, then this is sort of the rigid series of, of, sort of boxes or behaviors that come along with it. And I know very few people for whom that always works a hundred percent. No one ever gets confused. No one gets hurt. No one gets, um, you know, bamboozled. Um, I'll speak for myself and say that I've had a lot of heartbreak from that way of, of dating or having relationships. And so what relationship anarchy means to me personally, my focus is more on that idea of, of discussing things and considering things sort of individually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my God. There's so much good stuff in here that I find really interesting, especially what you're saying, this idea of um, 
taking responsibility for defining whatever, I don't want to say the terms of a relationship. I think that sounds maybe more businessy than I mean it, but I do agree with you that I think that the social norms of different relationship structures, which I think apply to relationships outside of just, you know, dating or romantic or sexual relationships, but predominantly in that space, I feel like the social norms uh, or what we think those relationships are supposed to be can really hold us back from the opportunity of deciding for ourselves and then having more sort of like rich and meaningful relationships that actually meet our needs. If we're sort of just operating under, well, like this is what it means for this person to be my boyfriend versus this is what it means for someone to be a friend. But what about if they're a best friend or there's like all these different things that I don't know, like I think that it the relationships are potentially more empty if we don't dig into it and like have those conversations. I mean, it's not even necessarily about the quality of the relationship, although I think that is a really important feature, but really for me, it comes down to kind of what feels the most humane or feels the most healthy emotionally for all the people involved. Um, I've been in relationships where I really drove myself crazy worrying about my partner's behavior. And it wasn't until, um, you know, a little bit later in life, I'm making it sound like I'm, I'm ancient. I'm in my early twenties, but it wasn't until I had a little, a little bit more experience under my belt, um, that I got to a point where I was like, why am I worried about this particular behavior? Is it actually because this particular behavior bothers me or is it because I, I feel as though it should bother me? Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes complete Um, sense. I mean, it's, it's like the difference between what we actually want versus what we think that we should want. Exactly. And I I think especially when it comes to sort of relationship categories, those things are so heavily reinforced um, and so rarely talked about, you know, in really explicit terms, in vulnerable terms, um, that it's really hard to have a sense of like, you know, do I actually care if, you know, my partner um, makes out with somebody at a party? Does that actually upset me because it upsets me or does it upset me because, of all the kind of other things that I've been led to believe come along with that, that like that must mean that my partner doesn't respect me or my partner, you know, is a bad person or whatever the case may be. And that can also work in the opposite. I've also been in, in situations where um, maybe the relationship was nominally open or casual and the terms of the relationship was that something wasn't supposed to bother me, but it did bother me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, everyone I think who's who's tried to play the hookup game has had some version of that because I think there are a lot of people who use um, sort of the label of casual as an excuse to kind of not be decent to people. Um, That's and very part well of said. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's I, I'm and I'm sure I'm not the first person to say it. I think anyone who's spent a sufficient amount of time um, kind of casually dating, and especially if you happen to be someone who casually dates or casually has sex with men. Um, Sorry to be a misandrist, but in my personal experience and also in my professional experience um, as an educator, I I have heard a lot of like really painful stories of people who, yeah, use the label of casual as a way to say, well, you should be okay with, um, you know, me like comparing your body to other other people's bodies or you should be okay with me, um, you know, in other ways, just kind of being generally disrespectful of your time, your energy, your investment, your emotions, and that, you know, if if the hurt partner is the one to say, I'm not okay with this, then it's, well, we're casual, and what do you expect? Um, or, oh, you not being okay with this must mean that you've caught feelings, when I'm just, 
I don't think it means you've caught feelings to, to want someone to kind of be decent to you. And also, why is it so demonic to catch feelings in the first place? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even that, that, that like falls into the, okay, well, you know, casual dating or sex or whatever is supposed to only look like this way and it comes with no feelings, but we're not robots. So there's always feelings of some kind. And why is that not okay? It's like what you're describing, I feel like is comforting to me because I feel like it allows room for just true messy humanness. Like we are humans. We have feelings. Like you don't always want the same thing yesterday that you do two weeks from now to like allowing a space within a given relationship just to have those conversations and to not be, well, like we agreed on this. So like these are the parameters and it can never change. You know, like there's something about that that just doesn't feel as human to me. Right. And I think any human is, is kind of the way that I think about it too especially when it comes to, and I think one of the notes that I had attached to relationship anarchy was like the institution of marriage. Um, and I, I think about that a lot because um, I am someone who was, I mean, I was definitely like heavily, heavily had it reinforced that marriage, partnership, family, child rearing, like that's all the end goal. Um, and certainly a lot of women, but also a lot of people in general, and especially heterosexual people have kind of been um, given this idea that like, this is the one way that, um, yeah, life, life progresses, um, in this really linear way where I found myself in these relationships when I was like 19, 20, 21, not trying to get married, not really not trying to get married at all, where I was assessing every single sexual or romantic partner as like, is this going to be the person that I'm with forever who fulfills a hundred percent of my needs? Um, that's nuts. Like that's, that's really an unfair expectation to put on, on anybody at any age, but certainly, I mean, it it wasn't until I kind of had been in a couple of really stressful relationships like that. And then I had this really, you know, one of those breakups that, that sort of broke me open or like, let me, let me think about things in a different way where I was looking back on these relationships. Like, why was I so worried if this person, you know, did X, Y, or Z or said X, Y, or Z? Why was it so serious um, that everything needed to be sort of a hundred percent in sync all the time when really I had fun with this person? Like we, we enjoyed each other's company. Um, you know, we made each other laugh. We, we went on these fun adventures and it really didn't need to be much more than that, you know, mm-hmm. for, for, for where things ended up on the other side. Um, or even just for, for what I was looking for in that moment. Um, and that's not to say, you know, I, speaking personally, I still consider monogamy like something that I do want in the future at some point. Maybe it won't look like everyone else's monogamy. Monogamy can mean a lot of things. Um, but like, I do, you know, I want, I want companionate love. I want partnership. I want um, all of those things. For me, though, that, that primarily just has to do with like functionally how I want my life to look and how I want my life to work rather than an idea that like, well, that's the one way that, that things should be. I think when you have the idea that it's the one way things should be, that's how you get people, you know, it's like every David Byrne song, right? Like people in idyllic, perfect looking lives who are actually like miserable or experiencing deep ennui. Um, I don't know. I had this conversation with an ex once, um, where we were talking about kind of the terms of our relationship and kind of how we wanted things to progress. And I said, you know, if you're waiting for me to get to the point where I just like you so much that I don't want you to date other people, that day might not ever come. 
Like that's that because that's not what monogamy means to me, or that's not what exclusivity means to me. Um, to me, if I was going to say to somebody, you know, I want to be with you and only you, that comes from a place of of positivity of like, I, I appreciate and love what you do in my life so much. Um, and the way that our lives fit together is such that I don't have room in my life to be with other people. I don't have room in my, um, you know, I don't have room in my day to spend with other people because I want to spend my days with you or I want to, you know, I want to live with you. I want to raise kids with you, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's something that's really hard to well, um, I'll say it this way. It's hard to unlearn if it's something that you've been taught, but it's also something that I think is kind of dispositional from person to person. And there are some people for whom it really is like, you know, once I like you a certain amount, I'm not going to want you to to be with other people because I like you so much. Um, and that's great for them. I probably shouldn't date those people, which is why I'm a relationship anarchist and I want to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. no, I mean, I, I love, I love just talking about relationships in general because I think that we are so stifled by the sort of like social norm cliche paradigms. Like when you said before that you were raised to think, you know, a certain type of partnership and the institution of marriage and child rearing, you know, if any situation where, where we, where we're given a really specific and narrow definition of what success looks like, I think the same could be true, you know, for careers, for finances, for lots of different things, then it essentially means that anything outside of that is considered a failure, even if it's not right, like what you said about being 20 years right. old and everyone you date, it's sort of like an interview of, are you going to be the person that 50 years from now meets all my needs? Like that's such a funny concept. And like, I don't know, this idea of relationship anarchy, feel like hearing you talk about it sort of opens up the, I don't know, letting every relationship just be whatever it is, as opposed to, you know, trying to fit everything into a narrow definition of success that might not even be your own definition, just something that was given to you. Right. And it's, I mean, it's not, it's not easy. Um, I think sometimes when I talk about it, it's easy to say like, oh, well, it makes, you know, perfect sense. And this is like the more humane way to be. And it's, it's, you know, it makes, it's totally logical to just do it this way instead. Um, It's definitely not easy. And I think it requires a lot of really hard work, but I think that's why it can be as rewarding as it is. Because, you know, in order for me to, to navigate a relationship in terms of needs, wants, and boundaries, I have to know what my needs, wants, and boundaries are. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is maybe the hardest part. Like knowing is, I mean, that's like the first really impossible mountain to climb. And then communicating is the second incredibly impossible mountain to climb um, when it comes to having those kinds of, those quote unquote unconventional relationships. Um, But like I said, I mean, it is a lot of hard work, but the alternative for me was these relationships that were, so exhausting and just exhausting for, um, for no reason. It was exhausting because I was kind of forcing myself to play a part or do something that just didn't, it, you know, it was a a coat that didn't fit me. Um, it was something that wasn't really in line with what I actually needed and wanted once Mm -hmm. I, once I took the time to look into it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, so pivoting a little bit, can you tell me the story of how you got started as a sex educator? Yeah. Um, I started teaching sex ed because I had terrible sex ed. Um, (laughs) I think a lot of us had really terrible sex ed. I feel like mine was minimal and also just fear-based. Well, my, I grew up in Texas, so mine was just, (laughs) yeah, Uh, mine was, you could barely call it sex education. Um, It really was as close to that scene from Mean Girls as, as I've kind of experienced in real life of really just having someone stand in front of you and, and say like, don't have sex 
it all has terrible consequences. Um, my sex educator told me, told our entire class that condoms always break and they're like super faulty and not reliable. Also told us that girls don't get horny. It was just a very confusing, it was a very confusing class. Um, so I, I sat through this really awful sex education. I'm, I can't even call it health class. It was a health class, quote unquote health class. And, um, I was at the time the vice president of my high school's GSA, Gay Straight Alliance. Um, I don't know if that's still like the terminology that's used because apparently that was a long time ago, um, which makes me feel kind of old. But the president at the time handed me a um, application for the National GSA Network's Youth Activism Camp. Um, or I think it was just for the Texas branch, the Texas GSA Network's Youth Activism Camp. And that was the first time that I ever got good sex ed. Um, they, I mean, it wasn't the best sex ed. Now that I'm a, you know, more of a professional, I can look back kind of with 2020 hindsight and see some ways that that program could have been improved. But what I really mostly remember is like, that was the first time I ever heard what lube was. That was the first time I heard someone explain um, how girls masturbate. Like, it was a really, um, yeah, it was a really transformative uh, experience for me. And so in the aftermath of that, the Texas Gay Straight Alliance Network, um, it was basically a network that existed to help um, GSAs in Texas kind of deal with their administrations, you know, get up and running, um, provide them with support and resources. And so one of the things that we were doing was helping um, get this information about about sort of queer, inclusive, pleasure-oriented sex ed out to, um, to other communities in Texas. Because as I said, it was an abstinence-only state. Um, the straight kids weren't even getting good sex ed, let alone um, the queer kids. So that was kind of my first introduction to sex education was not just from the health perspective, but specifically from this political perspective as well. Um, or this activist perspective of like, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just that it's important to share medically accurate information. It's that people have a right to this information. Um, they have a right to, you know, have access to the, the things that they need to stay healthy and to have not just healthy sex lives, but to have pleasurable sex lives. Like that's, you know, if we're, if I'm thinking about what my just world looks like, um, my just world is one where people have, have equal access to pleasure. And one of the most fundamental ways that we have that is by allowing people to have, you know, the sex lives that they want, whether they want to be having lots of sex with lots of different partners or they want to be having no sex with anybody at all. Um, so from there, you know, once I got to college, I continued working for public health organizations. I worked for the health promotion office at, at Columbia, um, doing some sex ed, but also doing a lot of like alcohol and other drug education um, and, you know, things around nutrition, things around stress and, and sleep. And I would say I would credit, you know, my high school or my college experience rather as being where I where I picked up my sort of holistic view of health promotion and of sex education in particular, um, that, you know, it's hard to educate someone on just one aspect of their health without talking about the ways that all those other I mean, you know, stress and sex have a lot to do with each other. Um, nutrition and sex have a lot to do with each other, too. Um and then post-college, um, 
I had a couple of different, I did some consulting for a while. That was fun. And then I got back into the health education game and for a while was working um, for an organization that did social and emotional skills education. So I was teaching things like empathy and communication and stress management and conflict resolution. Um, And that was kind of like the capstone of um, really building what I would say is now my expertise as a sex educator. Um, So, you know, coming at it from this political perspective, coming at it from this holistic sort of whole body perspective, and then also coming at it from this social and emotional perspective, because at the end of the day, um, you know, you can teach somebody how to put on a condom correctly, but if you don't teach them how to communicate with their partner about whether or not they want to use a condom, that, that knowledge might not actually ever go to use in the way that is going to help that person live the life that they want to live. Mm, that's so good. So can you talk a little bit more um, of some of the specifics of what good sex ed actually looks like in the classroom? Like, what would you love to see happen on a wider scale? So I'm lucky enough um, to work for, I work for a national nonprofit called Girls Inc., And uh, I work for their New York affiliate. And so I'm lucky enough that I work for a program where, um, you know, I'm embedded at a high school. I work there, you know, and I'm there the whole school day. I have a classroom. They call me Miss Halen. I give grades. I do attendance. The whole shebang um, with a group of sophomore students who I work with for the entire school year. So they're really getting a year long of comprehensive sex ed. Now, if I was going to say what's my dream situation, they would be getting that year at some point in middle school. And they would also have gotten a lot of other sort of smaller sex ed lessons, um, you know, from elementary up. Um, on my resume, I, I've worked with people from like, the youngest is like fifth grade. The oldest is, you know, well into into maturity and adulthood and middle age. Um, and everybody has questions. But most importantly, you know, everybody has um, things that they can learn and skills that they can build. And so especially when we're talking about young people, like I would love to see us teaching empathy and communication and consent from elementary school. Cause elementary school is when kids start chasing each other on the playground and grabbing each other and, um, you know, making, making fun of each other or making jokes that make each other feel uncomfortable all of those things, whether or not they're actually specifically about sex or parts of the body that we associate with sex, those all have to do with patterns of behavior that are going to become relevant as that young person grows into a sexual adult and grows mm-hmm. into sexual maturity. Mm-hmm. So I want to see us like teaching third and fourth graders um, how to ask somebody before you hug them or um, you know, how to respect it when somebody says, no, I don't want to share. Which, you know, we talk about that with, like, I think the last time I got graded on sharing was kindergarten. Um, That was helpful. We can do better. Mm -hmm. On the sex ed side specifically, I think, I mean, for starters, it boggles my mind how many people just don't know about their bodies. So on a really functional level, starting off with a lot more of that, um, you know, anatomy and medical piece, that part's important, too. And then really what I what I think good sex ed looks like in the classroom is you give it time and you give it importance. Um, I think that's what's missing from a lot of, of sex education that happens out in the world today is that, I mean, just speaking from my own personal experience doing sex ed, a lot of times my classes were 
not during the school day or they were, you know, it's during the school day, but it's only for a couple of weeks. This is our sex ed unit that we're going to kind of get in and out of as quickly as we can. Um, whereas I see my job as like, I, I, my job is to help people feel comfortable talking about sex first and foremost. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a huge piece that's coming out when I was reflecting on, I mean, it's been a long time since I reflected on what my sex ed experience was, but knowing that we were going to be having this conversation, I was trying to think back. And the fact that first of all, I had such a hard time remembering it shows just exactly how brief and fleeting, like you said, it was a unit or two in, you know, a quote health class where, and that unit was basically, you know, here's pictures of the worst STIs you can get, you know, fear-based stuff, whatever. And I, my clear, my clearest memory that came up was a memory of the instructor being really uncomfortable. And so it's like the messaging that I got, you know, whatever, not so subtly from that is this isn't an okay thing to talk about. We're going to rush through this. Like we're going to make jokes when we're uncomfortable, right? Like all of that type of stuff. We're going to be clinical. We're not really going to, you know, they, they say you can ask questions, but like the context is, well, you can't really right like that there's some like coding right. there of, like you're not really supposed to ask questions and I don't know so just like hearing you talk about it you know having even the thought of having one year-long thing for me probably would have been revolutionary just in the sense that this is something that's like not just okay to talk about but necessary to talk about and sort of removing the taboo from it I feel like that's as important as the actual educational pieces absolutely I was doing a demo um So I work mostly with sophomores for the sex ed curriculum, but I was teaching a demo for some freshman students to kind of get them prepared for what their sex ed class would look like next year. And so we did a a condom demonstration. I just showed them the basics of how to put on. And I also showed them some different forms of contraception just to like get them used to it. But when I pulled out the penis model, where I was actually going to put the condom on, the room went dead silent. And I was like, all right, ladies, so you know, what? what is this? And no one wanted to say anything. And I was like, I mean, come on, like, where does a condom go? And no one wanted to say anything. And I was like, we can't move on with the rest of class until everyone in this room has said the word penis. <laughs> not to torture you, not yeah. to make you feel uncomfortable, but because if you can't say the word penis, if you can't use the words that describe different body parts, I mean, the metaphor that I use with my, or not metaphor, but the scenario that I use with my students a lot is, you have to be able to go to a doctor and talk about the different body parts, bare minimum, right? Whether or not you plan on having sex, whether or not um, that's something that you see in your near or distant future, you have to be able to go to your doctor and say, I have pain on this particular part of my body, or I have a question about this particular part of my anatomy. So bare minimum, you've got to use the words with me. Like you've, you've got to be on board with me to use the words for different body parts. And then from there, it's also, you know, when we talk about issues of sexuality and sexual orientation, that's also the time where, you know, whether or not my students identify as queer, whether or not they have openly queer friends or ever plan to spend time in openly queer places, you need to know the words that people are going to use to describe their identities because you need to be able to describe your own identity. You need to be able to describe in, you know, the proper terminology who you are and who you see yourself as in the world. Um, I mean, in every possible respect, what I'm mostly trying to do, <clears throat> excuse me, what I'm mostly trying to do with my students is get them to a place where they are able to talk about topics related to their sexual health and identity and pleasure without being embarrassed and with the terminology that is correct. That's going to actually help them to, you know, if they 
I mean, if they do, God forbid, have a question they don't want to ask me and they want to Google it, let me at least give them the proper terms to Google. So they're more likely to find, you know, a medically accurate resource rather than, you know, I don't know, whatever urban dictionary resource might pop up if they are not sure what they're looking for in the first place. Mm -hmm. So the word pleasure has come up a couple of times. So I kind of want to dig into that because I know that one of your core beliefs is that all people deserve an integrated sex life and the healthy pursuit of pleasure. And um, specifically from the integrated sex life piece, can you talk about what you mean when you say that? Yeah, I think, um, A lot of us, especially, you know, if you were born and raised in America and certainly in other cultural contexts too, we're really heavily encouraged to think of sex being very separate from our real lives. You know, there's your sex life and then there's kind of the rest of your life. Um, I want to be careful in saying this because I'm I'm not saying that people shouldn't have a sense of privacy or that they don't deserve to feel like, um, certain parts of their, of their sexuality, don't need to be sort of publicly known or available to everybody. But when I say an integrated sex life, I mean in the same way that I can describe myself as a employee, for example, right? I can say like, Oh, I'm really um, organized. And you know, these are my skills. These are my weak points. This is who I see myself as, as an employee or as a sister or as a daughter or as a mother to my beautiful cat, you know, all of these things are, are ways that I can richly identify myself and richly describe myself. But for many people, you know, you can describe yourself in every possible way except for sexually, because sexually there's not as much of a vocabulary. There's not as much time spent thinking about that aspect of your life as a part of your identity and who you are. Um, and so when I say that, um, you know, my dream is for people to have more integrated sex lives, I don't mean that I want everyone to be as comfortable talking about sex in public as I am, because I don't think that's realistic. And I don't think that's a fair expectation for people. Um, what I mean is I want people to feel like their sexual selves are just as much a part of them as any other part of their life or their lifestyle. Um, you know, it's not it can, it can be secret, but it doesn't need to be shameful. It doesn't need to be something that is um, taboo to think about or to talk about. And I think there's so much, I mean, even just from personal experience, when I treated my sex life as something really separate from myself, I think that opened me up to a lot of um, situations that weren't very good for me. I mean, it opened me up to situations where, like I was saying earlier, I didn't know what my needs, wants, or boundaries were. I mean, when I first started college, when I was like 18, um, I was really struggling a lot with sexual shame. I, you know, I hadn't been working in the fields as long as I have been at this point. And uh, even though I was sort of more comfortable talking about sex than your average bear, um, I think I still felt a lot of shame about kind of being a sexual person or a lot of confusion about what it meant to, to be a sexual person. And that really opened me up to a lot of, of sort of toxic messages and, and toxic people um, because I didn't feel confident in, I mean, I didn't know my own needs, wants, and boundaries, and I didn't feel confident in, in asking for what I needed or articulating what I wanted or kind of enforcing my, my boundaries um, because I think I like a lot of people and certainly like a lot of, of um students of mine and, and clients of mine and just people I've met through my work were so often, you know, whether it's being ashamed because you want sex too much or because you don't want it enough or because the kind of sex that you want is quote unquote weird or because like 
you're really into making out for like hours and hours, which is a real thing I've heard people articulate feeling insecure about. Do they, do they just want to make out with their partner? Um, which is so sad. Like that's not something that, I mean, I'm of the belief that as long as things are, are, you know, safe, sane and consensual, um, there's nothing to feel ashamed of sexually. Our sexual desire and sexual attraction are things that we can't control. And the more shame that people have around those topics or the more that they kind of deny those topics or just, just treat those topics as though they're not, they're not part of themselves. Um, you know, the more likely those things are, yeah, going to show up in ways that maybe are harmful or just not the best that they can be. Mm -hmm. Um, when I'm reading tarot for folks, I talk a lot about how in the tarot deck, um, cards can either be upright or they can be reversed when they come out in a spread. And when a card is reversed, that's, that's not a sign that something is sort of evilly abhorrently wrong, but it's a sign that something's not flowing the way that it should, that some energy is kind of blocked. And that in and of itself doesn't mean that everything is going to go wrong, but when something is blocked or repressed or just not flowing in the way that it needs to, um, yeah, a lot of pain can come along with that, whether it's, you know, on that spiritual level, if you want to think about it that way, or just on a physiological level, like being repressed leads to chronic stress. It's not good for you on a physiological level to, to deny yourself who you are. Mm -hmm. So going back to the integration a little bit, I like that you made the distinction that having a more integrated sex life or, you know, not keeping necessarily your sex life so separate from what you think of as a quote, your real life doesn't mean a lack of privacy. I like that distinction a lot. So, uh, you know, sort of with that in mind, I don't know if I'm necessarily asking for like advice or starting points, but I think that that's a really common thing for folks to compartmentalize their sex lives into this like totally separate thing. Can you share either maybe what worked for you or just in general, a couple of maybe first steps that if for someone who wants to start to integrate those pieces of themselves more, because I see that as being something that like everything you're saying sounds so awesome. And then I feel like there's this kind of deer in headlights. Okay, but how do I actually do that? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Um, so there's an exercise that I sometimes recommend for my coaching clients, um, and sometimes for, for my tarot clients too. But, um, I recommend for folks to like sit down and write a sort of, um, you can pick, you know, for me, for example, I'm a sort of a workaholic. So I would write, um, a description of myself as an employee, or if you're someone who's very family oriented, a description of yourself as a friend or as a, um, you know, a supportive person, but just a description of yourself in one of the roles that you occupy in life. And then challenge yourself to write something equally long about who you are as a sexual being. Now, part of that might come down to like having the vocabulary or having the words. Um, so with that in mind, oh, I wish I had like a, a book that I could immediately throw out there as having like all the terms that you need to know. Um, I will say there's lots of lots of resources in general out there for finding terms that you need to know. Actually, one good place to start is um, any like introductory kink or BDSM websites, even if you are not kinky at all. Kinky people tend to have the most like sophisticated vocabularies for describing all the different ways that people can be sexually. Um, because for a lot of kink communities, like the kink is a big part of their of their identity um, in general. So that can be one place to start is like 
what um, what kinds of things are you into, right? Like what what activities do you enjoy sexually? But also, how often do you like to have sex? Are there certain sort of parameters around um, when you feel sexual or not sexual? What about having sex with yourself? Do you masturbate? Do you not masturbate? When you masturbate, you know, what's... Um, what, what kind of masturbator are you, so to speak? Are you functional? Are you sensual? Um, you know, are you, are you someone who sees sex as always tied to emotional intimacy? What does it mean for you to be sexually intimate with somebody? Are you somebody who sees yourself as more, um, you know, on the very basic level? Are you more of an initiator? Are you more someone who prefers to be kind of pursued? Um, all of those things are you know, they might be things that we've sort of thought about individually or in different moments or kind of separate from one another. But I would really encourage someone to the same way that you can sort of write a cover letter for yourself when you're applying for a job. Um, you know, what would it mean to describe yourself fully, your sexual profile? What words would you use? What are the things that feel more or less important? And then see where that where that kind of leads you or where that guides you. That's like the best list of questions. I'm going to need to, (laughs) for my own selfishly, pause this, write those all down, go to my journal. That's an incredibly good list of questions. It's it's interesting too. I'm a huge fan of journaling and, uh, or not really, I don't have a regular journaling practice, but using sort of handwritten question asking and answering as like a self-discovery tool. And even when I was listening to you say those questions, something that popped up in my mind that I'm sure I can't be the only one is the experience of answering those questions I feel like for me, and I've done some of this, but requires like a constant sort of like reassurance of, okay, telling yourself it's okay to put down the actual answer, not the answer that you're, that you think that you're supposed to put down. And I think especially when it comes to sexuality and like you mentioned before, how much shame and kind of like societal conditioning is wrapped up in that, that there really is a difference to the real answer maybe to one of those questions that's deeply true for me versus the answer that I think is like a more respectable answer, if that's even the right word. Or I think there's an ego piece too that, oh, I want to be seen a certain way, whether that's because because it, I feel like, I don't know, is more appreciated or whatever. There's like the ego answer, the like conditioned answer, and then there's the actual, actual real answer. And those three are not the same. Well, so here's the magical thing, though, is that all of those things are part of the answer of who you are as a sexual being. Um, like all of those things that, you know, whatever, whatever conditioning, whatever kind of lessons you've taken in, and speaking for myself too, all the sort of nasty stuff that I've absorbed from from our culture that is still in me in some ways in maybe subconscious ways or ways that I'm not comfortable with um, or things that feel I think respectable was the perfect word like things that I feel or desire that don't feel respectable even that feeling of it's not respectable is part of who I am as a sexual person Mm. Um, even my resistance to claiming certain things or my complicated feelings about certain things in my sexual identity is part of my sexual identity. Um, I think, you know, any, any sort of thinking person who's ever engaged in like a, a um, consensual power exchange, like dominant, submissive sexual dynamic, whether it was like one relationship, one encounter, or even just one moment in an encounter where there was this kind of power exchange you have to kind of think about what are the things that make me sort of, what are the things that make this exciting to me? Why do I desire it? 
if I feel uncomfortable with it, why do I feel uncomfortable with it? What are the things that I feel that it kind of reveals about me or might suggest about me as a person? And if we're talking about kind of having a more integrated sex life or, you know, integrating your sexuality into your real life, that's where all the work is to be done is Mm -hmm. in those places where there is friction or there is some kind of um, hesitance to claim, you know, whatever it is that you, that you actually do desire. Yeah. I think even hearing you say that, I feel like is comforting because (laughs) that this idea that we can just like magically move beyond any of that messaging like that, that that's not true. Like your point of that, well, that's inherently part of it also that they're like allowing room for all of that to be true and present and relevant. And also I feel like, and I don't, I know this isn't specifically what you said, so correct me if this isn't what you mean, but I feel like doing even, you know, answering that series of questions or starting to do that work with the mindset of there isn't going to be one set finish line style answer of like, okay, like this is the answer forever. The same way that, you know, with a cover letter or a resume, (laughs) your job (laughs) skills, desires, things would evolve that like, this isn't a static thing, right? Absolutely. I mean, and just like with cover letters, some people's cover letters look the same from your, look, some people are super consistent and they know exactly who they are and what they want and that doesn't change. And I somewhat envy those people. I mean, same. Um, yeah, definitely. But I think for the vast majority of people, you know, what you want or how you see yourself sexually will necessarily change over the course of your life. And that can also be another really big inflection point where people experience stress around their sexuality is when, you know, their, their body stops responding to things that it used to respond to or starts responding to things that it never responded to before. And now it's not only a question of, you know, who are you sexually? What's your sexual identity? But it can often become kind of really damaging to all the other parts of ego when it feels like, well, everything else is, I'm the person who I am and my sex life isn't cooperating with me Mm -hmm. um, or my sexuality isn't cooperating with me. And so the sexuality becomes a problem rather than, okay, this is a part of me and how am I going to integrate it into who I am? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so well said. Um, I wanted to ask you your sex advice Tumblr asking for a friend. Can you talk about the origin (laughs) of, of that? Oh my god, it's like essentially defunct at the moment. I really I like fantasize constantly about kind of investing all the time and energy in it. I will say that the, the phone number still works. Um so essentially asking for a friend was sort of born out of in college I was doing a um a sex advice column called The Girl in O4C because that was the dorm room that I lived in my senior year of college. And it was just so fun. I mean, I I teach sex ed for a reason, which is that like I think I might have said this before we started recording, but like I'm a total voyeur. I love talking to people about the details of their lives that have nothing to do with me. And when you teach sex ed, um, when you are a sex educator, people tell you all kinds of stuff about their personal lives. They would never tell anybody else. Um, sometimes that they've never even told like the people that they have sex with, which is incredible. It's a rush. Um, but one of the things that um, I loved about doing the sex advice column was that I feel like so many people, what what people really need, if you can't get good sex ed at sort of the age appropriate time, is people just need someone who they feel like they can talk to, like they talk to their friends, who actually knows the, the answers to things. Um, I think it's true that even people who haven't had good sex ed or even people who feel shy about talking about sex, there's usually at least one person in your life who you go to with your weird questions, um, whether it's like an older sibling or, you know, just a close friend. And that person might have answers that work for you in that moment. 
But unless you're pretty like lucky or strategic about how you make your friendships, it's unlikely that that person is going to have kind of all the medically accurate information or that that person's going to be able to communicate with you in a way that kind of makes you feel like safe and unjudged asking your questions. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind um, the girl in O4C and the idea that was kind of carried into asking for a friend was I want to be your friend, Halen. That's what all my friends do to me anyway, is just ask me questions about their sex lives. So I might as well offer that out to other people who aren't as blessed as my friends to have me as a friend in their real life um, and sort of offer offer my services in that way. So the asking for a friend um, Tumblr, which is semi-functional at the moment, um, I haven't updated it in a while, but as I said, the phone number still works. It's, it's attached to a text line. Um, it's not my real phone number, but it is a phone number that goes to my phone. And when people message it, I'm able to, um, you know, in, in as much time as it takes to text them back, just say, hey, uh, you know, the same way that I would if my friend was texting me from a sex shop saying, hey, Halen, which of these butt plugs should I buy? Um, I can do that for for someone who is not someone who I happen to immediately know. Um, and a lot of times, I mean, even just in some of the responses that I've posted on the Tumblr, there's also a lot of responses that I haven't posted on the Tumblr because they do feel too personal. Um, and it it is really meaningful to kind of have a conversation with somebody, even if it's just over text and I never know their name and we never talk again, um, where, you know, someone is really worried about something or really curious about something in their sex life. And I happen to be the person that they can talk to about it. Um, and I can give them the information that is not only, you know, medically accurate and going to keep them safe, but might also help them integrate a little bit more with with their desires and feel a little bit less embarrassed or ashamed for asking the question in the first place. Yeah, I think the embarrassment and the shame are key. And like the disclaimer that you have on the side of, you know, like no questions too stupid, no fantasy is too bizarre. Like I feel like so much of what underpins the hesitancy to talk about this kind of stuff or ask these questions is like fundamentally, we all just like want to know that we're okay, right? And anytime you have, you don't want to seem, I don't know, I don't want to say like too outside the box, but I think there is a lot of fear of what if I communicate this thing and, you know, this person I'm communicating it to judges me or thinks differently or like I do think that there's a lot of fear there and so having a space that feels safe to ask questions like that you just described I don't know I think that's really important well let's be let's be real like I've had conversations with people who I was sexually intimate with where I expressed something that I wanted or desired or was curious about or even just brought something up as a concept and the response that I got was you know not just rejection but the kind of rejection that as you said makes you feel like dirty or ashamed or kind of like am I gross am I am I sort of non-human somehow have I broken some rule that I didn't know existed um and I think I mean if that can happen with somebody who who you're actually like physically intimate with um that's a fear that exists for a lot of people in in a lot of different settings whether it's I mean I know I know people turn on incognito mode to Google questions when they're on their home computer on their personal internet. Like Mm -hmm. you're not worried your employer is going to see it. There's just a sort of paranoid fear that I'm I'm doing something dirty or I'm asking a question. And I, I really don't want someone to know that like secretly, these are the things that I think about. Look, like I said, have privacy, but where's your desire for privacy coming from? Cause you think that people are going to are what going to put you in stocks in the town square 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can <laughs> this is might be a strange question? You can f- feel free to say no. But do you have um, like a one or two favorite questions that people have asked that like really stick out to you? I mean, like the number one thing people say to me when they're about to ask a question is like, this might be a weird question and it's just not like it's, it simply isn't. Um, at this point I've been teaching sex ed in some form or fashion for almost 10 years. I think it's been like eight or nine years at this point. And I've heard literally every single, um, possible type of question that, that there is. So, I've heard questions about like, I mean, my favorite question I would get when I worked at the sex shop was like, does this go in my butt? Like, and just picking up random things in the store and being like, is this a butt toy? And I'd have to be like, no, please, please do not put that in your butt for these specific reasons. Um, But generally speaking, I mean, there aren't really questions that stand out to me as especially entertaining or weird or funny because at the end of the day, every single person in the world has questions about sex and sexuality, Um, whether they are like sexually active or not, whether they ever plan to be sexually active or not. People have questions about sex and sexuality and no question really feels much weirder than another because just like everybody has questions about these topics, everyone also has like their own sexual identity and, and experience that they walk through the world with. Um, part of what I love about my job is how universal it is. So yeah, people ask me questions about, I think things that like fetishes that maybe would raise eyebrows for other people. But as a child who was raised by the internet, like nothing scares, nothing scares me fetish wise. And Mm -hmm. also I've, I've just heard enough people ask like, is this normal? Like, is this a fetish? Is this a thing that, that is okay? That like, yeah, if it exists, it's probably someone's fetish. And you know, maybe I can help you figure out the safe way to, to do it or the safe way to approximate it to to get your rocks off. Um, but I can't think of anything someone's asked me where I was just straight up like, whoa, like, no, like I've had people ask me about like uh, urinating during anal sex, like urinating into someone's anus during anal sex. And I've had multiple people ask me that question. So there's really no such thing as a weird question. Yeah, I think it's funny. The answer that you just gave answered a more articulate version of the question that I think I should have asked because I, yeah, I definitely wasn't asking for like the most entertaining or, you know, whatever question. Cause I agree. I think that all questions are valid and no question is stupid and everything should be talked about. I think what I was asking, which you answered without, <laughs> so thanks for answering the question that I didn't ask, had, had to do with exactly what you said that we all think that we're alone or that we're the special snowflake and the only person that's ever going to have that question. Hence the phrasing of like, this might be weird, but, or I might be the only one, but, and then of course that's never the case. You're like, let me show you these like 20 other people who asked a similar version of the same question that I think, yeah, that's what, um, kind of like what I was hoping you would say, whether there was, were any questions that were asked that people felt like, oh, I'm, I'm so alone in feeling this way. And sort of the reassurance of no, you're not, which like actually you just gave, I feel the same way, not in a sex question context, but it's given the nature of the podcast that I do and sort of the other work that happens in the Patreon community and like the weekly emails that I send out, I get so many emails from listeners that it's, you know, this really struck a chord with me and I'm probably the only one, but, and then I'll have like literally 10 emails back to back that basically say the exact same thing. And I always feel like I wish that I could make my inbox public, not actually, but just to be like, see, you're not alone. Like literally this person and this person and this person. And and I just think that we often need the reassurance of like everyone. And I mean, not that everyone feels the same way, but I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the, 
one of the things that I think makes me good at my job is I have no poker face like whatsoever. I'm really <laughs> bad at hiding how I feel. But when people ask me questions about about sex ed, I think one of the most reassuring things to them is that my face doesn't change when they ask me questions that like I if someone's like, yeah, I have a question. I can smile and say, yeah, what's your question? And when they're done with the question, I'll still be smiling and nodding and, and clearly listening and paying attention and thinking of how I can like assist them. Um, even if I don't know the answer to their question, I've, I can see so much relief sort of wash over somebody when they've gotten the question out and it's been said out in public and I haven't so much as kind of, again, like raise my eyebrows or sort of change my, my body language. Um, because ultimately, like I said, my job is to, to help people feel more comfortable talking about it. In the age of Google, I don't think that it's my job to know the answer to every single question that someone might ask me. But if I can make them feel like it's not a weird question, it's a normal thing to ask and maybe get them to a place where they can can get the correct information, then, you know, I think I've I think I've done my job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, There's so much other stuff that we could talk about in this and other subjects. But um, before we start to wrap up, is there anything that's top of mind for you that hasn't come up yet in this conversation that you wanted to discuss? Um. I guess the only thing that hasn't really come up yet is, is sort of that the topic of like, I don't even know how to phrase it, but like men seeing themselves as sexual objects in addition to being sexual subjects, which might be a little too sort of esoteric for this last like 15 minute chunk. <laughs> but you tell me. No, no, no. I'm into that because I know that that was one of the things that you were talking about in email, sort of toxic masculinity, objectification. And yeah, that even it was kind of like really wordy and still important. So is there even sort of like a bite size thing that you want to talk about in that or like even what you yeah. mean when you just started to describe it? I guess I guess the best way to describe like what I am talking about is to tell a story. So Essentially, this there's one time in particular this has happened that was very memorable, but it's actually happened a couple of times in my dating life where I've been intimate with somebody, um, with a man, a cis het man specifically, and at some point we've been, you know, exchanging text messages, we were getting a little flirtatious, and I asked them to send me a picture, like well, you know, send nudes. It's it's 2018. That's that's what people do. Um, and rather than saying, like, no, I'm not comfortable with it, which would be one response entirely, the response that I would get would be more along the lines of, like, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm a good person, or no, I'm not going to do that because I don't know how. Um, so the, the good person response, I think, gets to sort of a little bit of what we were talking about earlier, and this idea of, like, our sexual behavior has kind of has all this other stuff attached to it, right? To the point where someone who I've, I've already had sex with, who I'm already intimate with, who I am specifically requesting, like, may I see a picture of you naked? Um, it still feels like they have to respond no because we've had it drilled into our heads over and over again that, uh, like, a dick pic is by definition disrespectful. It's by definition unwanted, and it's by definition, like, a, only something that a bad person would do, the other response of I don't know how was what really like stuck in my mind and fascinated me for a long time and has kind of, I, I kind of have this, um, again, I don't get to talk about it very often, except I guess, you know, I wrote an article about how like, you know, we deserve a society 
that takes hand jobs seriously. So it's kind of on the same vein, but specifically on the idea of like, what would it mean for men to see themselves not just as like people who have sex, who go out and like pursue sex and engage in sexual actions, but also as sexual objects, like someone that somebody else might want to have sex with. Um, And I think you might be surprised like polling your average heterosexual man in the world, how many straight men who like are sexually active and have a lot of sex really struggle to see themselves as sexually desirable um, on that physical level, like looking at themselves in the mirror and being able to say, I see these specific things that someone might find attractive in me. Um, I think a lot of times that gets like distilled down to, you know, like people like, straight women complaining on the internet that like oh like men don't know how to dress themselves or like that's the whole sort of underlying logic behind the old queer eye for the straight guy and the new queer eye is like oh men don't know how to look at themselves with that same kind of critical eye um but i think i mean look i think there's a lot of things that people from different gender socializations can learn from each other i think that there's a lot of people who have been socialized as women who could probably learn a lot from the idea of being, you know, a sexual subject and kind of being a little more, I don't want to say selfish, but a little bit more self-interested, um, sexually speaking. And I think there's also a lot of men who could benefit from, you know, obviously as women, it's like, uh, torture, it's, it's daily torture to be surrounded by images of what sexy women look like and to kind of constantly be checking yourself against the idea of a sexy woman in terms of your posture, in terms of your clothes, in terms of your appearance, in terms of your behavior. But might it not be nice for people on all sides of the gender spectrum to be able to feel like they can see in themselves what someone else might see in them that makes them desirable. Um, you know, it doesn't have to go to the point of tyranny as it has, I think, for a lot of, of women in the world, but just to the point of being able to see yourself as, as sexy and sexually appealing. Um, I think that also opens the door to being able to see yourself as someone who, you know, deserves a different kind of pleasure, like pleasure that's not just functional, but pleasure that's more sensual. And I think it also opens the door to kind of having more empathetic sexual relationships. If I can't understand what it's like to be a sexual subject, I have a hard time empathizing with my partner um, who's making all the decisions and very much vice versa. Um, If you've never experienced kind of being objectified or looking at yourself from an objectified lens, it's really hard to kind of be empathetic to your partner and what they might desire and what they might need, especially if what they desire and what they need is for you to maybe like judge it up a little in the um, appearance, behavior, demeanor department. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I'm like, <laughs> like a little bit speechless. I wanted to, I wish we had a lot more time to talk about this. It's, it's so <laughs> interesting even to, and I mean, obviously we won't dig into it too much, but looking at even sort of the idea of objectification from a broader spectrum. Cause I think that's even a, a word that you hear, you know, like it's bad to objectify people, right? Like I think that's the uh, initial connotation oh, of that yeah. word. And so to hear you talk about sort of the benefits of, um, like specifically 
objectification or like you said, like looking at yourself as what are the things that, you know, would be attractive or that are attractive or whatever, and just sort of looking from different sides of the gender spectrum and like take like pulling lessons from that and making it, I don't know, less black and white than like objectifying is bad. And this is the way that things should be. There's I'm not being very articulate, but everything that you just said made so much sense. I mean, yeah, I think like objectification, much like appropriation or um, internalization, any of these words that get borrowed from the social sciences and kind of are broadly applied to social justice or kind of cultural topics more generally, like objectification is just a word. It just describes a process. Um, And there are a lot of ways in which objectification is really bad for people. Um, and to be specific, it's bad for, for women and gender nonconforming people. Um, but more broadly speaking, you know, there are benefits to, yeah, being able to see yourself as like a, a sexual, sexy object. Um, I'm going to bring back the phrase suspension of disbelief that like part of what makes that fun or what makes that sexy and makes it sexually compelling is that in the sexual realm, it's what we've been trained to kind of be attracted to. And it's also in some ways how like human sexuality and the human brain works that I can't necessarily conceive of my partner as a whole human being a hundred percent of the time, but I can conceive of my partner as, you know, looking like a snack to borrow uh, some millennial language, or I guess what's the current generation called? I have no idea. (laughs) Whatever, whatever they are to borrow some of their slang terminology. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think just like, I mean, look with some of those questions earlier about like, how do you see yourself as a sexual person? I think there's a lot of people who might be hard pressed to admit how important it is for them to feel sexy and feel like they look sexy in order to enjoy sex. Um, Whether or not that's a good thing or like the correct way for things to be, it's true. Like that's the true reality that a lot of people live in. And so if that's the reality that we live in, I think it's sort of, um, it's unfair to ask people to not, not care about those things or to call them superficial and call them shallow when they are a part of our sexual beings and they Mm -hmm. are a part of our sexual identities. Yeah. Yeah. It's like starting from a place of not denying what's true for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's so good. Um, So I think that's a good place to start to wrap up the way that we end these episodes are with a series of just like quick rapid fire questions. Basically the people in the Patreon community, the listeners who fund the show um, each season put forward a bunch of questions and basically all eight guests of the season answer the same seven questions. If you're down to answer seven totally random questions. Okay, let's do it. What's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast lately? Ooh, I don't really eat breakfast. (laughs) I guess coffee. <laughs> hey, listen, that's a great answer. Any specific like black coffee? Like what's your coffee ritual? Black coffee. Just I love black it. coffee. Um, that's how I am with tea too. Like people want to do all kinds of fancy things. And I'm like, no, just give me the no. black tea in a mug. <laughs> um, what's the one thought that gives you the most butterflies right now? Like when you think about it, you get all excited and tingly, maybe even a little bit nervous. Um, I think it's tied. I'm doing two really big things this year that I've never done before. Um, so I'm keynoting my first conference in April, which I think is making me nervous because it's really close. And then I'm, um, I'm planning on getting my yoga teacher certification this summer, which is less nervous butterflies and more like, oh, I, I cannot wait for this type butterflies. That's awesome. Um, what's a belief or opinion that you feel like you've done a total 180 on something that you used to believe that you no longer do? 
I used to hate blueberries so much that I pretended I was allergic to them and now they're my favorite berry. <laughs> That's such a good answer. I mean, not that there could be a bad answer, but you were like very ready with that information. <laughs> I literally, like I would lie through my teeth and say, I can't have this blueberry muffin because I'm allergic. And now I'm obsessed. I'm a nut. What's frustrating you the most right now? Like maybe an area of your life that you feel is currently particularly challenging? Money. Always. That's my perpetual answer to that question. We live under capitalism and I'm always worried about money. Always. Yeah. I feel like (laughs) this has clearly come up on the podcast a bunch of times, but I'm like, sex and money is all I want to talk about. (laughs) Let's just talk about sex and money and sex and money. Um, What's one, speaking of money, what's one thing that you consider worth splurging on? Ooh, um, Ooh, that's a really good question because I, I honestly splurge a lot, but I think the splurges that I feel least guilty about are splurges on, um, how do I want to say this? When I'm traveling alone, I have no budget. Um, that level of like self care, me time, treat yourself. I mean, I'm always sort of inclined to luxury, but I think it's always worth it to like, if I'm on in rest mode, I'm going to go all in. Mm -hmm. So the next question is about books, which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Um, okay. That's a really hard question, but I think... All right. The first book I would say, just because it's sitting right next to me and I I do always reread it, um, it's called Magic, The Simple Truth. And it is one of the first sort of magic philosophy books that really stuck with me and was really meaningful to me. Um, I think maybe Watchmen would be another one, not to reveal myself as someone who did not have sex in high school, but I'm I'm a really big graphic novels person. And that was obviously a big deal for me for a lot of reasons. And then I would say the last one is um, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Mm -hmm. That was like a really transformative book for me. And I know it's really cliche, but... um, But I mean, cliche books are cliche for a reason, right? Like, they're wonderful. (laughs) It's true to me for a reason. So that's my truth. (laughs) So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Ooh. Okay. I think the flippant version of this call to action is masturbate more, but I'm going to be a little bit more nuanced and say, make more room in your life for pleasure. Um, If pleasure for you means sexual pleasure, then by all means masturbate more. But if pleasure for you means just like taking nice baths or eating nice food or whatever it is, like intentionally create room in your life for pleasure. I don't care how stressed out you are. There's something you can do for yourself that's nice for yourself, mm-hmm. even if it's just a little scalp massage. Yeah, I also think that's like a, a constant reminder that we need, in, especially in our culture that has this like hyper focus on productivity and like not pleasure. So I think that's always a welcome reminder. I mean, I, I just finished teaching a lesson to, um, to some of my students about self-care. We're talking about different self-care strategies. And someone asked like, oh, you know, can we consider masturbation self-care because, you know, you shouldn't really do it too often. It's like kind of bad for you. And I was like, no, like unless you're masturbating all day to the point where you can't like go to work or go to school, please do whatever makes you feel good. That's one of the sort of purest forms of self-care we have. And it's one of few forms of self-care that costs zero dollars and zero cents. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way maybe to connect with new folks? 
Yeah, I mean, I uh, this is going to sound so corny, but I actually love getting emails. And my email is just my first and last name at Gmail. So if someone actually wants to say hi to me, say hi to me directly. I'd love to talk to you. Um, but as far as staying abreast as, uh, in what I'm doing these days, I'm on Instagram and on Twitter at Halen with six N's. So Halen, H-A-Y-L-I-N-N-N-N-N-N-N. Um, and there's also my website, which is Halen.co, where you can find everything about all the different things that I do, um, all the different places you can find me, all the different ways that you can book my services. If you are interested in that, that's all in the same place. Okay. Well, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Um, and I assume from the way that you were describing, um, do it, that you do the long distance, um, tarot readings that that's like, you're currently accepting new people for that. So if someone's listening, like wants to work with you, they can go to your website and book that. Yeah, I'm, I'm always taking new clients. Um, I will be lim- available for limited in-person readings for anyone who's in the New York City area. I'm an in-house reader at Catlands Books. Um, so you can always come find me there. But anyone who's not in New York or if you are in New York and you want a day other than Saturday, um, come and talk to me. I'd love to love to speak with you. Awesome. Like I said, I'm a voyeur. So tell me about your life. <laughs> <laughs> I know we have that in common. Um, this was so awesome. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. It's been such a such a pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Jules. Hi, Jules. Hello. You ready to answer some rapid-fire questions? All right. No pressure. Your, your answers don't have to be rapid. <laughs> um, my favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Um, right now, actually, I, I this is, you're going to get a laugh out of this, but I am finally reading the Harry Potter books. Oh, my gosh. For the first time? For the first time. Have you seen the movies? <laughs> I've only seen the first movie. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, my God. Stop it. I have so many feelings. I'm so jealous. Sometimes I wish that I could like erase my brain and read them all over again for the first time. I'm so jealous that you're having that experience. Yeah. Um, right now, I'm in like the middle of the Goblet of Fire. Oh, that's my favorite book. Oh, God. That was – see, I had seen all of the movies. I saw the movies before the books except the last one. So it was right before um, the final – Uh, movie came out and I was like yeah I should read these books which is funny because I'm like an obsessive reader and I read the first three and I'm like oh yeah these are really really good but it wasn't until I got to the fourth one that I was like oh shit I've been missing out (laughs) well and it's funny because like um so I live with my partner and then um a couple roommates and like they've all seen the movies read the books all of that and like for the longest time I just kind of resisted not not really like for any reason just like it came out like the books came out when I was like getting towards the tail end of high school. So I wasn't really like concentrating on like working on that. And then like I've got friends like my friend Alex, who's in um, Lima right now. She's really obsessed with the books as well. And she was so excited when I told her I was finally reading them. Oh my God, it's and, the best life choice you could ever make. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I've been reading like young adult lit in the last like few years. Like I read Twi- the Twilight series and the Divergent series. And, you know, just kind of like they're quick reads. But I just don't know why I just never got into Harry Potter. <laughs> Mistakes. Now you're correcting it. So that's good. I'm very excited for you. When you finish the last book, please email me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tell me all your feels. Okay, good. Uh, I mean, good luck. You're going to cry for like a week if it's anything like me. I read the books. I read them all in 
yeah, I think it was about a week, maybe, maybe 10 days. And the final book, I sat down and literally didn't move for 10 hours and read the entire thing. It's <laughs> like, okay, I, like strained my eyes. It was good. It's one of those things where I just want to like, I don't want to like hurry up and rush through it because I know I'm not going to be able to like feel it the same way. Mm-hmm. That's smart. Yeah, I reread them every year and it's excellent, but uh, not the same as the first time for sure. Oh, I love it. I'm so excited for you. So next question, if you could go back five years and give your younger self some advice, what would it be? Oh, wow. This is, this is pretty crazy. So um, last fall, so like right before Thanksgiving, I switched careers entirely. Um, so like I had been at that job for like seven years. And at this point, go back five years, I had told myself to get out of that unhealthy work environment. Mm-hmm. Get out of it sooner. <laughs> like, yeah. Get out of it sooner. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's one of those things like I miss the co- some of the coworkers, but we've tried to maintain the friendship afterwards, which is important. But in the same regard, I'm like, I needed to shed that skin a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I've been there. Totally. Um, when or in what situation do you feel most yourself? Like when you're totally in your zone, being your truest self, what are you doing? Uh, I was going to say is I'm either out for a run or I am knitting or crafting of some sort. Oh. So I, yeah, I since I'm working on a queen size blanket for my bed and it's like the most crazy thing I've ever done. Definitely the biggest thing. And then I also scrapbook all my running stuff. So that's adorable. Are you training for anything right now? Um, I'm actually, I'm getting ready for the, uh, the Drake Relays 10K and then also the Grand Blue Mile. So that's exciting. I know. And then like the next month I'm doing a fundraiser for girls on the run. Um, and I'm doing the women, Des Moines women's half marathon. So, so no big deal. Just a lot of things. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> me, just are you training lot. for anything? You let me give you my list. Yeah. That's funny. And then, yeah. And then after that, I'm running Dam to Dam, which is a 20K road race, which will be ending this year. So I, I have to do it. <laughs> have to, yeah. Got it. Got to get it in. That's awesome. Um, what's one new thing that you would love to try this year? One new thing. Oh, well, um, getting my passport and definitely trying to set aside money so I can, like I said, um, visit my friend who lives in Lima right now. <laughs> so that would definitely be a new thing. Would that be your first passport? Have, it'd be my first passport. It would be the First time out of the country. That's super so. exciting. Do it. Do it. I know, I know. Read Harry Potter. Go to Peru. Yeah. Good life choices. <laughs> uh, yeah. Save money. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, last question. What's one thing that you wish that people were more open and honest about? As I say, every, every outro, even on, on, on the community, money, man. Okay. What, what specifically about money? A lot of it is just like how, like, it seems like, well, okay. So I work at a, Big, spot, big box retailer with tech. So people are spending absorbent amounts of money and it's just like credits and, you know, like where are people getting the money to like drop money on like brand new iPhones and things like that? I'm like, where does that happen? <laughs> you know, what, what, what job are you doing and like what life things are you sacrificing to like, I guess, kind of meet that status quo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I clearly yeah. also I have a lot of questions about money too. Clearly. <laughs> um, so you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible, since you make a small and powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. Well, the biggest thing um, was I, I like getting your weekly email. And when you took that away and made that part of being, you know, part of the community, I'm like, okay, yep, I'm coming along. And then I've decided 
in the last year to increase what I give so that I can hear your um, conversations with Julia because Julia is how I found you. <laughs> yeah, I was I, I was thinking about that this morning because it's been a while since you and I talked and I was trying to remember what the original connection was and I thought that it was through Julia. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, she's the best. Having her, um, I guess for people who are listening, there's a couple different funding levels of the, for the podcast and um, the $16 level, one of the bonuses is that Julia Hanlon, um, formerly of the Running on Ohm podcast, a dear friend of mine, she and I do a, a series called Real Talk Reflections that we used to do on her show and now it's sort of a monthly, really honest check-in of what's going on for both of us, what's working, what's not working. And um, so those bonus episodes are for that level. And yeah, I know I have a lot of people that are like, yay, yay, Julia, bring back Julia. And I told her that and she said, yeah, let's do it. So it's been fun to do that with her this year. I know. I love it. I just like, I'm like, I got to schedule everything around and like sit down at my computer and listen to those episodes when they're up. That's so. awesome. I love it. Yeah. She, well, at the time of this recording, she's in Ethiopia. So it'll be fun. Yeah. We're going to do the end of March one um, in early April, right? When she gets back. So I'm mm-hmm. excited to hear about her trip. Yeah, no, it's like, it's exciting that she's going back to Ethiopia, because I know that her experience over there was very eye-opening for Mm -hmm. her, and she talks about that on Running on Ohm, I think. Totally. It's also funny that um, to hear you say that you decided to join Patreon uh, initially because of the Friday emails. I was actually surprised how many people that's true for. Like, I've gotten notes from people that are like, "Uh, no offense, I don't listen to podcasts. It's not really my thing, but I really want to get your like weekly emails. So I'm going to pledge this. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm glad that's (laughs) whatever's worth it for you. But yeah, that's that's always nice. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's just like it's a little bit of happiness in my like otherwise clogged inbox. So I appreciate it. It helps keep me sane processing my real life in real time and knowing that other people are going to read it. So it's like a selfish exercise that I guess other people enjoy. So that works out. Um, And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 